Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I am so thrilled to have today Heather Hunt-Ruddy, who is the head of client experience and growth for Wells Fargo Advisors. Now, what's so exciting about Heather's persona and her personality and what she brings to the table is that she's been very successful in an industry traditionally dominated by men, the financial industry, over the past 30 years. And she's not only built a business that she loves and does work that she really cares about and feels that she's making a tremendous impact on the lives of others, but she's also got a family and a husband and they've been married for a long time and they have a great marriage and she speaks a lot about this idea, about how important that is. And she does work empowering other moms who are trying to build their business. So we go, we get personal in this in this interview and Heather shares not just broad strokes about industry and lifestyle and education, although we get into all of that, she also shares how she was able to overcome the barriers that were presented to her as as a, as a woman starting out in, in her business 30 years ago, how she's been able to grow her professional life, how she's been able to manage being a professional and a mother and not compromising, how do you build a marriage that you want, all of these things which are crucially important and oftentimes left off of the consideration when a person thinks about how do I build something that I'm proud of professionally. So with no further ado, I give you Heather Hunt-Ruddy, again, the head of client experience and growth with Wells Fargo. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so thrilled to have you on. You are someone who has, in a lot of ways, broken through the glass ceilings and now have gone around and are continuing to teach other people how we can deal with the workplace, women in the workplace, how women can be involved in the financial sector in a very high level. So tell me a little bit about your background and your path to getting to where you are today. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you today. So, oh boy, my path is a complicated drive down a long country road. I, uh, I grew up in a farm town in central Illinois. And uh, when I went off to college, my freshman year, my parents called me home at Christmas and said, we love you, but we have declared bankruptcy and we can't pay your tuition. Wow. Um, and I, uh, you know, momentary panic, fears of bad lady, all the, the things that happened, went back to school and uh, begged for financial aid from the university. They weren't really very helpful. So I got a job. My first job was waiting tables and tending bar underage, but we'll probably keep that part of it out. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working at a great place in Chicago and I was making a fair amount of money, but it was erratic. So if you've ever waited tables, it's completely erratic. And I was having a hard time making ends meet and having a really hard time paying my tuition. So I answered an ad in the DePaul school newspaper for a fixed income sales assistant um, because I thought that meant they'd pay me a fixed income as opposed to knowing what the job actually meant. And that's how I got started in the business. So it was luck um, and it was desperation. Luck and desperation were how I started. <laughs> Great. So for, for, those, for those people who want to have a little bit of a different path, 
Um, what kind of, <laughs> I hope what, most people have a different path. So, so what kind of skill sets, I guess, maybe speak you know, broadly about financial services, the financial industry. What kind of things should people be interested or wanting to do when they go into this business? And then what kind of steps can they do to orient themselves to be successful in their career? So I think the biggest thing that people have to want um, about their life in this business is they have to want to help people. Like, this job allows you to fundamentally impact people's lives because you help them with their money. So it's a very big deal to help somebody with their money. My financial advisor, for example, big, big deal for me was I um, just completed putting one child through college. Wow. Now my parents couldn't do it for me. So it was such a big deal for me to do it for somebody else in such a sense of accomplishment. And the person who worked with me to get me there, she made that happen because she kept on me. She, forced me to think about things like putting money away and 529 plans and all that kind of stuff that you do to get ready for college. So you have to have a genuine desire to help people and you have to have a genuine interest in people. So this is definitely a people business. This is a, you have to enjoy spending time with people. There's all kinds of analytical jobs too for people who love spreadsheets and love finance and love data. Not, not my gig, but, uh, but there's a lot of roles like that in this world too. But I would tell you, if you love people, you love helping people, it's an incredible business to get to get into. When you are looking at someone and trying to help them with their finances, and I, I think that the, the whole concept of financial security and developing a plan, a lot of it is, is, is difficult for people. So what are some of the core fundamentals or questions that one should be asking themselves, A, in terms of finding a financial advisor to work with, or how you set up a strategy that's going to make you the most successful in terms of the goals that you want? Yeah, I think finding a financial advisor is the most important thing you can figure out. And for me, you have to find somebody that does two things for you. They have to listen to you. They have to take the time to understand you, to understand what your money means, what you're trying to accomplish. Like somebody who spends their time up front selling you something, you probably should go in a different direction. Somebody who spends a lot of time asking questions, writing things down, understanding you is a very, very big deal. Um, now, folks don't always like to have a plan. It's, it's interesting to me. It's a little bit like going to the doctor. I had a doctor's appointment this morning and we were laughing about how patients lie um, because they don't want to admit that they're eating too much or right. whatever bad thing that they're you doing. You swear you brush your teeth before you go to the dentist and, and stuff I like that. I floss daily, right. sure. Right. Daily. Right. I floss every day, which <laughs> I don't. I should. Um, and just that's human nature. So a plan says, I know where I want to be. And people should sit down and write down and think about, you spend your entire life building money, building wealth earning an income. And you do that because you think about what you want that money to mean. And a lot of people focus on it on retirement, but I will tell you, I personally think about it much earlier than retirement. I'm doing some of the things that I want to do now um, because I'm just one of those people that doesn't always want to wait for the last, you know, hopeful not shoe to drop. Um, <laughs> but I think people need to sit down, think about what their money means and what they want it to do for them. Do you find that there are certain hangups that people have around money and around, I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting topic that I'm not sure maybe you could speak to a little bit about how you got good at listening and taking, was that something that came naturally to you? And also, what are some of the biggest like psychological barriers that people have to either enjoying the money that they have? Like what you said is, is a really fascinating idea that you spend a ton of time building wealth, but then, you know, by the time it's, time to enjoy the wealth, you might not have the energy or in some cases the health to really enjoy everything that you built. So what are some of the, you know, traits that you had to develop in yourself? And also what are some of the 
I guess you could say difficulties that people have when it comes to money and understanding it? Well, I definitely had to learn to listen. And I was lucky enough, you know, 30 years in this business, I was lucky enough to have incredible mentors over the years who taught me that uh, the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, and we should use them in direct proportion to that ratio. Uh, so I learned that and I learned it by messing up. And I was lucky enough to be able to mess up and have people say, you know, do you think that went the way you should have had it go? And so I learned. And the more I listen to people and the less I talk, it's amazing how much smarter people think I am. Um, so it, I always tell my kids, the least you talk is the more brilliant people will imagine you to be. So that for me was on the job training, making lots of mistakes and having the luxury of making mistakes and having people. And when you asked me the question there about money and what hangups people have, money brings all kinds of strange dynamics. Um, it brings guilt. So uh, big time guilt, particularly if you have it and other people in your, in your family don't. So if you have a set of siblings um, and one is successful and the others are not, the guilt that that can bring in terms of feeling like you need to step up and help others, sometimes to your own detriment, um, guilt can give you a, or money can give you a feeling of invincibility. It can make you feel like you're more secure or more um, successful or smarter than you are. So I've seen people earn some wealth and, and use that as a basis for their self-worth. Uh, money can make- Which you would say don't, would you, now just, just I, you know, now this is interesting in terms of crossing over in terms of relationships and also, you know, your, your role as a manager, would you step in at that point and point that out to someone? Is it just like, oh boy, I see this happening? Like, how would you as a, on, on, on a professional side, when you're seeing, seeing someone making a very fundamental life mistake, it's not necessarily that they're putting their money in a place that it's not going to, you know, yield reliable returns, but it's like they're making a big life mistake. Do you step in and suggest something like that? Or how do you address that? I have. I think that particularly the financial industry tends to um, create this keeping up with the Joneses approach. And I have over the years had people who put themselves into debt and leverage to look a certain way, yeah. to drive a certain car, to have a certain house, to belong to a certain club. And it's all an illusion. And the first bad thing that happens takes it all away, but it doesn't just take it away in a way that most people can sustain. It takes it away. So if I have a good enough relationship with the person, yes, I have had those conversations on multiple different occasions in my past, but you got to have enough of a relationship with somebody that they're going to listen. Do you see that being more, and, and just I'm asking as someone that spent 30 years in, this, in the industry, do you see that becoming more of a challenge or more, you know, I actually, become, I see it becoming less of a challenge. It's interesting. Really? Millennials. I don't see my millennials doing that. I don't see them buying cars they can't afford and houses they can't afford. In fact, I see them delaying home purchases. I see them delaying marriage and I see them delaying kids because I think that they are as impacted by the great recession as the um, greatest generation was by the depression. In terms of I making them concerned, it's like, it's like, a, it's, it's it delayed gratification. Also a certain level of, of, of fear that if you don't have enough set up that, that you're going to be interesting. Yeah, I actually think they're more cautious. Um, and I don't see, none of my millennials drive fancy cars, even the ones who can afford it. Interesting. Can, just can I throw, ask you to throw on your hat as a mom and a mentor for, for other women? Like in terms of, I totally understand the idea of, 
again, buying a house you can't afford, buying a car you can't afford, et cetera. What about life choices like marriage? Would you advise people to like set up, set themselves up in a certain way prior to marriage or is it kind of circumstantial? You never know. Like, how do you see that? Well, it's interesting. I give a marriage talk. <laughs> I've given it at my kid's high school. Nobody even knows this. You're, so you're this getting is, all this the great. Fantastic. Um, I believe that the single most important decision you'll make in your entire life is who you marry. Yes. And I say this to my children all the time, because for me, it was the single most important decision I made. I married somebody who was um, absolutely my compliment. So my husband is a full-time dad and has been for 22 years and cheers for me and um, puts me out front and, and is so happy when I do well and so secure in his own being. And we have amazing, well-adjusted kids because of him, not because of me. Hard for a mom to say that, but I give him all the credit. So thinking really long and hard about who you marry is the advice that I give. Your life, you can put up with any problem, any problem in life if you're good at home. Hmm. And everything feels bad if you're bad at home. Everything. I, I Okay, I, I have to ask a couple of different questions. One thing is when you were setting yourself up in the situation again, like the idea was it sounds to me that you didn't have this desire from a very young age that you were going to have a, you know, 30 year career with, uh, nope. you know, so, so, and when you were meeting your husband, was that part of the discussion? Or was that just the roles that developed as your career was built? And, and when we, it's interesting when we had our first child, who's now 22, um, we were prepared to both go back to work and we, we caved and we were afraid and we weren't comfortable with the, uh, choices we had in the city that we lived in with the money that we made. We just could not get comfortable. And the decision came down to the fact that I made $1,000 a year more than he did. Oh my God. That was literally, so I'm actually <laughs> terrible because I didn't plan this, but I did marry somebody that I knew family first, whatever, whatever happens to take care of the family is the decision he was always going to make. So choosing the right person made meant we made the right decision. And it was literally a thousand dollar difference between our incomes at the time. That's insane. It, yeah. When, when you're, when then, so, so then if you don't, if you can't see what life's going to hand you and you're not really sure where you're going to go with your career, your life, et cetera, what are the fundamentals? And maybe, maybe this is what you spoke about in your marriage class, but what are the fundamentals in terms of the values that you would advise people to look for when it comes to finding a supportive spouse? So this is really turning into a very interesting interview. Way off I had the no idea. <laughs> um, for me, my litmus test that I tell my kids all the time is the person you marry should make you feel great about yourself more than 90% of the time. Wow. Like make you feel better about yourself than you feel when you're alone. And I think if somebody does that, they do that consistently over a period of dating, then they're likely going to keep doing that for you your whole life. And when somebody believes in you, it's amazing how much you believe in yourself. Um, and how good that is and how you make great decisions because there's so much positive force and energy there. So I'm, uh, I think if people make you feel bad more than 10% of the time, something's wrong. If I could switch, switch back hats a little bit more conventionally, um, you, you are working within a very well-known, very historical financial institution, Wells Fargo. After 30 years in the business, 
what made you feel, and, and it just in general, like there's certain, you know, there's different trends nowadays. Some people say they want to go on their own. They want to start their own shop, be part of a small shop. You built yourself in one of the biggest banks, I think, in, at least in America. What mm-hmm. was the idea of staying and growing within a company as opposed to learning some skills, starting your own thing? Yeah. So for me, um, I have been able to steadily grow here, which has been important to me. I have been on a fairly steady climb up a ladder in a way that made sense for me and made sense for my family. And I remember telling my boss, who our president, a few years, five years ago, you have one summer that if you want to promote me, I'll take it because it's the only time we could move. Uh-huh. And he hit the bid and he did it that one summer. So I could keep family together and I could keep my job going. And a company that's that supportive, um, that's a big deal. And so for me, it made a ton of sense. This firm's all about people. I love the people I get a chance to work with. I'm lucky. It's outstanding. So what's it like for 30 years being a woman in what is considered, you know, traditionally a, a man's business? Did you actually reach, did you find that there were, you know, barriers that were set up around your expectations or, you know, stuff like that? Or, or was that kind of more of a, of a myth? No, there were definitely barriers early on. Okay. I, mean, I did not start at this firm early on. And there were expectations. And um, uh, when I tried to get my first sort of professional job after I graduated college at another firm in another city that shall remain unnamed, um, I went in and I was told that I could be in the typing pool or I could be in the um, new word processing group they were rolling out. But that I had to understand as a woman, I was a have not and I needed to be, you know, comfortable with my place. By the way, that was a woman who told me that. They, she actually said that? I have not. I quit my job that day. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Right after I graduated college. I'm like, I worked that hard to get through college, and you're going to tell me I'm a have not, and I get to become a typist? No disrespect to typists. It just was so frustrating to me, that message. Um, I grew up with uh, an unbelievable set of grandparents who raised me, for the most part, World War II veteran grandfather and this amazing grandmother who just always always beat into me that I could do great things if I just set my mind to it. And so that lived inside me and I didn't, I wasn't going to accept somebody telling me that I wasn't worthy. Um, And I'm lucky, so lucky to have had that message. And I think about kids who don't have that message. um, And when they grow up thinking they can't, when they really, really can, I'm not smarter than anybody else. I'm really not. I just have been lucky enough to land in the right place and have a support system around me that makes sense. If you're speaking to someone who is now early or even mid career Mm -hmm. and hasn't had the kind of success, hasn't been able to build the kind of a business, the kind of a legacy, they don't look at what they're doing every day and say, this really like resonates with me and just didn't find, hasn't found their place. What do you tell them? And, and what should a person do in order to, bring them their best selves to their careers and, and to build a, a lifestyle that, that works for them? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a couple of parts to your question that are a little interesting. The first is if you're in a job or a career that doesn't satisfy you, uh, you have to ask yourself, is it the job or the career or is it you? Some people um, like to be where they are and they need to be honest with themselves that they like to be where they are. And that's fine. No, no harm, no foul there. Perfect. If you're unsatisfied because you feel like you work someplace that doesn't support you or you don't feel like you can grow, then I don't think there's anything wrong with poking your head up and saying, what else is out there? 
but you have to be brave and bravery is hard. And there were so many years when I didn't feel brave and I faked it. Hmm. Um, and I showed up and I took my place and I almost, um, I never assumed that I wasn't my place to take. I assumed it was my place to take, even though I didn't believe it inside, even though I was terrified inside. And eventually you start to believe it because you did it for so many years. So it's, you know, people call that fake it till you make it or whatever, but, but be brave, even when you don't feel like being brave. And, um, I tell everybody the best investment you can make is investing in yourself. It's the, almost the one that's guaranteed to pay off. Mm. So, so such as just professionally developing or spending professional time development, being brave enough to talk to your manager about opportunities and money, but understand, do an amazing job where you are. Like, do the job you have today in order to get the next job. Don't go in and demand the next job. Be amazing where you are. And then you have every right to stand up and say, I want this next thing. Fantastic. In terms of raising children, and, and, and also please speak in terms of your, your breadth of experience, if it's changed over time or if it hasn't. You know, if you're raising, I have three daughters. How do you raise girls specifically to feel the same level of ability to, to show up and fake it till you make it and push your way through like that you were able to exemplify in your life? Like what are some of the lessons that you pushed your own family and your own kids to have in order to set them up for the maximum success in their life? So um, I'll tell you a story about my youngest who is 16 and she's brilliant. I mean, she's by far my most driven child. She's shy and she, um, let people make decisions for her, like in school groups and things like that. And we've spent the last two years, I called it the Finding Rachel's Voice Project. And she laughs at me, she rolls her eyes. Oh, here comes mom again, you know, with the lectures and the, uh, but we actually are really, really close. And so we go for walks and we talk about finding her voice. And it's me getting her, she's lucky that she's got somebody who's taking that kind of an interest. I'm not saying I'm a great mom, but I feel like every parent needs to think about arming their children for the future less than what's going on right at the present. Like think about what they're going to have to do in the future and um, building her confidence. So she's incredibly resilient. We moved here. She went through a year where she was suffering from some bullying and things like that were going on. And I keep building her up, reminding her that she's come through things like that and been amazing, but she has to find her voice. And we're starting college interviews in the next month. And uh, I think she's ready because she found her voice. So Think about what, what, your daughter. Give me, give me a little bit. Give me a little bit more in terms of like how really do you practice. find your voice? Like, like, we like practice. We role played. You were you were you were asking her what do you think, and then and then you pushed. I was her asking play. her college interview questions. I was prepping her for that. Okay. Um, I was prepping her for her student council election speech. I was prepping her for her. Um, uh, she runs a literary magazine at school, and we were prepping her for the meeting she needed to host and how to command the room and how to think about, you know, she doesn't have to have my voice, but she has to have her voice. Just to, just to stop and to go a little bit deeper on that, on that, when you are applying for college, you're applying to a job, even when you're speaking to clients and, and you know, there is a, you're dealing with a, a set of expectations of whatever industry or person that you're in front of, how do you stay honest and genuine and have your own voice without 
being afraid or, or perhaps you're afraid. You know, again, you know, the, the, a lot of people have that fear of if I say X, the college is going to be like, actually, you know what, you're not a good fit for us. So the client's going to say, you know what, I'm going to find somebody else. So how do you balance that d- desire for outcome versus having your own voice? I think you have to be genuine to who you are. And I think people who don't choose you when you're genuine to who you are are probably not people you want to spend time with. And I said to Rachel last night, if a college doesn't want you, they're not smart enough to get you. That's amazing. (laughs) Because she's interesting and quirky and funny. And I want that to be who she is. I don't want her to be me. Right. Right. Yeah. So be yourself. Go ahead. Love you. (laughs) Um, Is that, is that a lesson or do you feel like in terms of gender education and, and, just the, the role of women in general in the workforce nowadays, and I don't know if you're, you know, you're looking at millennials and you're looking at how, how the, the culture has changed over time. What's shifted and what would be the ideal way that people should look at their careers vis-a-vis their life, vis-a-vis their education, et cetera? So um, I think the, the cultural shift in terms of gender is pretty profound. Mm. Um, and yet that glass ceiling remains fairly intact. It's a little cracked, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's maybe got some spider veins in it, but it's definitely not shattered. Interesting. Okay. It'll shatter in the next generation. If it were shattered, you'd see 50% of C-suite executives as women. You'd mm. see a woman president. You'd see, I mean, there's just clearly, we're not quite there yet, um, but it's definitely got spider cracks in it. But if you look at where um, college enrollment is, graduate school enrollment, um, high-end accounting programs, law schools, med schools, they're primarily majority women now. Yes. So you can just see in the next generation, that glass ceiling is going to shatter. It's a a building wave, you're saying. It's just not... The wave is coming. There's no chance that the wave doesn't come. It just is. We have to get to an honest conversation in this country about families, raising families and careers, um, because this perception that only a woman can do it, I'm living proof that in my case, a man did it better um, and was much, much more patient much kinder day to day than I probably would be. He's just uh, it's better suited for it. But you've got to think about your marriage, your life, and your career in a way that at the end, again, I follow these weird litmus tests, but when I'm sitting on my front porch um, and I'm 90, I want to look back on my life without regret. I want to know that I was good to people and that they felt like I was good to them and I made them better. And I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize and I'm unlikely to become president of the United States and the prima ballerina for the New York Ballet is definitely off the list of things that are possible for me right now. Um, So you start to, as you get older, you get this place where you go, okay, what's my legacy? Um, And I want to leave this business looking more diverse than it did when I found it. And I want to leave the people that I've come in contact feeling like I made them better. That's for me, that's where I am. And I'm definitely at that place where I'm starting to reflect because I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that concept. In fact, I, 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 I named my podcast after this idea of, of a legacy and, and you sort of figuring out, okay, so like, what is your signature going to be on the world? Is there a time that that happens? Is there a time that should happen? Do you wish, because I mean, like just in general, I'm looking at, you know, just in the course of your interview, yes, you, you work in wealth management, but the topics you're talking about are very human topics, not saying wealth management isn't, but um, you know, you're, you're speaking about uh, empowering women in the workplace, you know, strengthening the family, et cetera. These are very like big human issues. And yes, you have a 
platform as a woman that's been successful in, in the financial industry for 30 years. But was there a shift in your life where you started thinking that way or it just naturally happened as you got more established? Um, I think the shift in my life happened in a couple of places. So I ran um, our entire marketplace for Detroit um, it, through the great financial crisis. And that was a huge eye-opener in terms of human frailty and human pain and what people could go through. Um, but I would tell you heading towards empty nest is the single biggest reflection point for me because I've spent years, I was either at work or I was with my kids, work or kids, and um, kids and family. My husband obviously is always there, but you know, I'm getting towards empty nest. So the evenings are things where I can actually sit back occasionally and read a book and think about what's going on in the world. And it, it just caused me personally to reflect upon, I've got time left and I can make a big difference. So let's not, I'm no longer focused surely on growing my career. I'm focused on leaving the world in a better place. Mm. Um, I want something nice written on my tombstone someday. That's brilliant. That's, that's, that's brilliant. And, and the final, final question is, what demographic do you feel is in the great, let's say, you know, you have all of this amazing experience. There's, you know, now you can niche to speak to any group of people in the world. What demographic, maybe gender, maybe socioeconomic class, maybe it's age, like what demographic most needs to hear from what you have experienced ideas of empowerment and ideas of kind of breaking through and becoming the best version of yourself? Women who are building their careers and their families. I, that's the people I talk to the most. It's the people who I mentor the most. And I have an active list of people I'm mentoring right now. Wow. People who are scared and struggling with all the things I struggled with um, and feeling like they're alone and they're not. It's a whole bunch of us. That's amazing. Okay, Heather, thank you so much for the time. How do people find out more about the important work that you're doing in terms of the legacy building or your- so They can join me on LinkedIn, which I okay. love that. Great. Um, and, uh, and we'll just keep talking about it. Fantastic. Heather, thank you so much for the time. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.